0: news power
1: hour yeah here we are on the 9th of december getting closer and closer to christmas and today is the last day of the week that we have the biz news power hour remember we come to you mondays through thursdays and we've got an interesting show for you as always in the next 60 minutes Well, by now, you hopefully are aware that every Thursday I have a conversation with Gary Struble, who is the general manager of Nova FM in Namibia. That is our partner, coming up after the Financial Times of London, have informed us on what's going on internationally. Big story there is Evergrande, the Chinese property company with $300 billion in debt that has defaulted. That story and the story about... The big four accounting firms having a record year because of the pandemic coming up from our partners at the Financial Times in London. Also in the program tonight, we'll be hearing, um, Justin, from your interview on a stock that many members of the business community hold or did hold, tongot Hewlett, once Natal's biggest industrial company.
2: Exactly. And for the last 18 months, it's been embarking on a turnaround story which looked good for so long. Unfortunately, the company has been experiencing operational troubles, which Chris Logan points out. Chris was also on the conference call that took place after the results today, where they further discuss in more detail the rights issue and how Tongart will look going into the future. But things are looking a bit skeptical there. And Chris is a little bit concerned.
1: And the big story there as well is the... Introduction of a Zimbabwean controlling shareholder of family from Zim uh, who have kept a very low profile. But uh, lots of interesting stuff coming up in that interview. And then uh, Bratim Modise, uh, our colleague Tim, uh, spoke with uh, a the former uh, chief executive of Transnet Rail, Tau Morewe. Uh, about what's going on with the railway infrastructure in South Africa. It's a really good interview. And uh, we also have tonight uh, the last in our series, and we've been doing this over the past few months, talking about Power Pulse, which is a fabulous initiative from Standard Bank where they bring together the people, uh, or well, people, businesses and uh, homes who want to invest in solar energy but are not sure which suppliers are legit. Now, what Santa Bank have done very smartly is they've put together this exchange where they have vetted the suppliers and then by having uh, people that that uh, or companies that they're working with, that they give the thumbs up to, it means those who want to invest in solar power plants in business or at home uh, have got a pretty strong backing from the bank who would then finance it to go forward so really good uh, uh, initiative and we'll be talking with the guys from power pulse and in that you will hear in this episode from the chief engineer of renewables uh, of both ukuruleni and johannesburg the two biggest municipalities in that area in the country but first let's catch up on the day's news BrightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. <clears throat> the daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Nadia, what's in today's news headlines?
3: A new study by the University of Cape Town has found that while vaccine mandates may assist in improving the uptake of vaccines, only 40% of Africans supported them. The study found that there was high vaccine hesitancy among Africans living in Africa as well as in the diaspora. Only 63% of participants would be willing to receive a COVID-19 vaccination as soon as possible, and an additional 5% would receive vaccines after considering their safety in people who have been vaccinated before them. In the past few months, several private companies and institutions of higher learning have introduced the COVID-19 vaccine mandates, and the government has also set up a task team to look look into whether it should implement mandates. Scientists and researchers have welcomed Sarpra's approval of a Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine booster shot, which will be available for anyone over the age of 18, six months after their second dose. New data from Pfizer shows that the booster jab will increase efficacy against the Omicron variant. Researchers said that the next step is to get approval for the mix and match COVID treatment, allowing the different vaccines to be used in combination. And South African citizens are still getting the short end of the stick when it comes to value for tax money, with only 19% of the 1.9 trillion rand national and provincial government spending getting a clean audit in the 2020 2021 financial year. Auditor General Tsakani Maluleke published her office's latest report showing that out of 115 government departments and entities, one state-owned enterprise, the Development Bank of South Africa, and two key departments got a clean audit. Across the books, government spending is littered with diverted resources, wasteful and fruitless spending, and loose financial controls, all while citizens are robbed of basic service delivery and access to finance. Justin, back to you for the market report.
2: Thanks, Nods. The JSE All Share Index was slightly lower at 72,000. In the currency markets, the Rand is weaker against all the major currencies to 15 Rand 91 cents to the dollar, 21 Rand to the pound, and 18 Rand to the euro. Gold is low at $1,777 an ounce. Kruger Rand will cost you around 30,000 Rand. Brent crude is trading at $75.50 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back around 780,000 Rand. In the financial news, sugar producer Tongard Hewlett which is still struggling to put its accounting scandal behind it, says July's civil unrest costed 160 million in profits as fields were set ablaze and stocks looted. The former blue chip stock, now valued at only 800 million on the JSE, says the unrest also led to property damage and sales being cancelled, with the group now on track to tap shoulders for up to 4 billion Rand in early 2022 as it battles a 7 billion Rand debt pile. Tongod is in the midst of a turnaround strategy it started in 2019. After investigation, found that managers had overstated profits and the value of assets in what turned out to be South Africa's second biggest corporate scandal, surpassed by Steinoff.
1: This Daily Market Report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
0: Today is Thursday, December 9th, and this is your FT News Briefing. The big four accounting firms have tallied big revenues, thanks in part to the pandemic. And Apple's privacy policy doesn't totally keep user data private. Plus, the indebted Chinese real estate giant Evergrande is now in government hands. How will Beijing minimize the damage?
4: Governments never had to oversee the debt workout of a company like this. Evergrande's liabilities are upwards of $300 billion.
0: I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news unique. The big four accounting firms have posted their strongest financial performance since the accounting scandal that led to Enron's collapse nearly 20 years ago. KPMG, Deloitte, EY, and PwC collectively posted nearly $170 billion in revenues for this financial year. And driving that growth was a lot of companies turning to consultants at the big four during the pandemic. Here's FT accountancy correspondent Michael O'Dwyer.
5: They needed help with digital transformation, getting their businesses and their employees up and running online. On top of that, you had a real surge in environmental, social, and governance emphasis from investors during the pandemic. And companies have been really trying to make sure that they are in line with investors' expectations, but also with the expectations of other stakeholders. There's things around Brexit, global supply chains have been under pressure. So there are all kinds of pressures on companies where they are seeking advice. And that's been a boon to the big four.
0: But as demand for consulting services increases, is there still concern about conflicts of interest? I mean, wasn't the whole lesson from Enron that accountants may not be able to rigorously or you know even objectively check a company's books if it's trying to keep them as a client?
5: It's a good question. I think the first point to say is that in the, in the wake of Enron and three of the big four, more or less sold off their consulting businesses in order to avoid that, that, that very problem. Um, however, over time, they have rebuilt those parts of their business very successfully through a combination of organic growth and by acquiring other businesses. The question of whether they face those same questions about conflicts that, that you mentioned, I think they do. They are certainly more conscious of it now. They are slower and sometimes refuse to take on consulting work where it relates to audit clients. However, it's not a perfect solution for them, for sure. One, sometimes those conflicts can be difficult to assess. Two, the temptation to to take consulting fees always remains. And three, you can have frustration building up within the consulting business or part of that consulting business if partners who want to take on a new client are prevented from doing so.
0: Michael O'Dwyer is the FT's accountancy correspondent. Apple has reached a truce with app developers. Earlier this year, Apple came out with a new privacy policy requiring developers to get explicit permission from users to track them for advertising purposes. As you might expect, most users opted out, and many companies lost huge chunks of their ad revenue. But as the FT's Patrick McGee has found out, apps have been taking a loose view of those rules and can
6: still get your data. I would say there have been two wildly different interpretations of what Apple's rules have meant, even before they went into effect. And so in my mind, there's sort of a strict interpretation and a a loose interpretation, and I think for a long time, I, I I really thought the strict interpretation was the correct one, which was basically saying, hey, if you're an iPhone user and you opt out of being tracked, then essentially your data should no longer be like leaked to these opaque third parties that you don't actually have a relationship with. If you are Facebook or Snap or Google, it, it's not an issue with Apple whatsoever that they understand um, and tailor advertising on you based on your input into those apps, What Apple is against is that they can also know how you operate as you move from app to app. And the controversy is whether your phone should cease to leak anything or whether these companies are allowed to continue, quote unquote, tracking you so long as they are doing it at a group level, a a cohorted level, an aggregate level where they promise that, you know, the user level data is always anonymized. And I I think this has been a, a debate for many months. And my contention, more or less, is that this looser interpretation has won the day insofar as Apple has taken no enforcement action against it. And it's and it's widespread.
0: Patrick McGee covers Apple for the FT. He's based in San Francisco. It looks like the end of the road for the giant Chinese property developer Evergrande. The company owes hundreds of billions of dollars in debt, and for several months already, markets have been expecting it to default. Now, the FT's Beijing bureau chief, Tom Mitchell, reports Evergrande this week announced a new committee that includes several government officials. The company announced
4: it on uh, Monday evening, and, you know, it was a real signal. It's basically saying this company is now, for all intents and purposes in state hands, while Hui Kayen, the founder of Evergrande, is nominally chairman of this company, it's clear he's, he's no longer in control.
0: So, Tom, what are the government's options? Can it avoid Evergrande's troubles turning into a wider property sector crash?
4: Well, that's what makes the story so fascinating. The government thinks it can. It has a lot of experience with these sorts of situations, and generally it's worked out very well. But even... You know the larger companies that have run into debt troubles and have been subject to government-supervised restructurings—they're not ones that the outside world is that familiar with, or that the government's never had to oversee the debt workout of a company like this. Evergrande's liabilities are upwards of $300 billion. Um, however, the government's got a lot of levers to pull. It owns. Almost all of the banking system. So it can tell banks, I know you want to pull loans back from Evergrande because you don't trust they're going to be around to repay it, but we want them to finish that project and to pay the contractors and pay the workers so nobody gets laid off. So you are going to lend to Evergrande so it can finish this project. We'll make sure you get your money back. So that's what the Chinese government's going to be doing. It has been doing it actually for a number of months now. The formation of the committee was kind of official recognition that it's in control
0: of all this. You know, given Evergrande's size, if it goes down, uh, could it drag down China's broader economy or the growth in the economy?
3: Well,
4: it already has. Not Evergrande specifically, but the stricter government leverage policies that were applied to developers late last year, that's what catalyzed Evergrande's crisis the effect of those across the entire property sector. We've seen home prices uh, plateauing or even beginning to fall in some places, sales declining. So we've already seen a a downturn, but it should be acknowledged this is a downturn that the Chinese government kind of wanted to happen because it's felt the property markets are too hot, property in too many cities is too unaffordable, and Uh, President Xi Jinping wants to create a more equitable society. And this is a big part of it. Of course, they don't want it to turn down too quickly and create, you know, a whole new set of economic problems like the ones you can envisage coming from uh, an Evergrande collapse.
0: What about the bondholders, the people not being paid? What's going to happen to them? We're almost certainly going to
4: see a restructuring that will involve very steep haircuts on most of Evergrande's debt. However, the debt has fallen, you know, over recent months. So some of the bonds that it looks like will trigger a formal default this week. I think they were trading already at, you know, twenty to thirty cents on the dollar. So bottom feeders who came in and bought the debt very cheap, you know, they may do okay in a workout situation. They might even make a little bit of money through this process. But if you bought Evergrande bonds at, you know, 90, 95 cents on the dollar or par, you know, you're looking at at huge losses. And to be honest, especially if you're an overseas bondholder. The Chinese government doesn't care about you. You are at the bottom of their list. They want to make sure Chinese retail investors who are owed money by Evergrande get paid. Chinese contractors get repaid. Chinese banks get repaid. Probably Chinese bondholders even get repaid, certainly before international bondholders. So it's going to be a very nervous process for Evergrande's overseas creditors.
0: Tom Mitchell is the FT's Beijing bureau chief. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
7: No one just makes a meal for a special occasion. You may go online or to that really fancy daily on the corner and look at all the different options available in one place. Maybe I'll make a risotto and I'll make it really special with some truffles
0: extra Parmesan, and chili oil on the side.
7: So why should investing be any different? Glacier by Sunlams investment platform offers you the widest choice of local and global funds from different fund managers that you can mix and match all in one place. And it lets you customize your investment exactly the way you want it. So you can enjoy your life exactly the way you want to. Ask your financial advisor why you're not with Glacier. Glacier Financial Solutions and Sunum Life Insurance are licensed financial services providers.
8: Nova 1035, time now for the Biz News Weekly Wrap. And joining me from his brand new studios in Johannesburg, Alec Hogg. Alec, congratulations on the new kit out.
1: Yeah, I've, I've got to tell you this because I'm sure you can uh, relate. Uh, yes, last night was our very first night. for we doing our power hour from the studio And um, we had connectivity issues and we were eight minutes late in putting everything together, Murphy's Law. But anyway, (laughs) it just happens like that. But my goodness, is it lovely to have a green screen, soundproofed, uh, just state-of-the-art stuff. So looking forward to producing great art from here.
8: All right, let's get to (laughs) it. It's been a big week in South Africa, and I'm sure you'll want to talk a little bit about it. But the ANC dealt another blow after suffering, I mean, potentially crippling losses in the, in the, in the last municipal elections, using the action around um, expropriation without compensation. I see there's a lot of content on the sites around that. Tell us, tell us your thoughts, what's happened.
1: Section 25 of the constitution, of South Africa's constitution, is really critical. You have to go back a little bit. In 2017, when Sir Ramaphosa was surprisingly... Uh, elected president of the ANC and thereafter the country. What the opposition to him managed to slip in was to uh, bring in expropriation of land without compensation, which has been a hot potato ever since. Ramaphosa's managed it pretty well. He's got other ways of dealing with the land redistribution in South Africa, uh, which are unlikely to be as uh, prejudice to international investment. That's what it's all about. uh, Cyril understands that this is a developing country. It needs foreign capital. And you're not going to get foreign capital if you're going to have something in your constitution which says, we, the government, can confiscate your property at a whim, which is effectively the way they wanted to change the constitution. This proposal that was put before parliament didn't go far enough for the EFF. So uh, the radical socialists were not prepared to support it. And even people within the ANC, uh, 26 of the ANC parliamentarians themselves, who were there voting, voted against it, <laughs> voting with the other side. So uh, it was way short of the two-thirds majority that was required. And we live to fi- uh, fight another day, as does Ramaphosa. I'm sure he wanted this outcome. Of course, he could never say so publicly. Politicians
8: never, and I say never as a figurative never, vote their conscience. They, they have a strategy. A bunch of ANC parliamentarians decided to vote against party policy. What's the story there?
1: Well, it does appear as though it was pretty uh, engineered to, to fail. South Africa's had 400 seats in Parliament, so they need a two-thirds majority, so you need the 270 to get it through, and they got 205. They were a long way short. With well, EFF, there's another 44 votes, so that would have taken you to about 250, but it had those 26 who voted against it from the ANC voted with it, they might have just got there, had the EFF come along. But you're so right, Gary. There's, there's a whole lot that's happening behind the scenes that we're not aware of. What I do know, though, is that the president of South Africa is fully aware of the, uh, the damage that something like this would have done to, the, to the, his efforts to bring investment into South Africa. So all it it really was a triumph of common sense.
8: Let's go from potential damage to probable damage, and that's the story around Shell. I see now that the tribesmen along the wild coast are now taking Shell to court as well. Uh, They seem to have faced an uphill battle in the last week since we last spoke. There's been a lot of activism around this. Uh, What's the latest on on that story?
1: Well, there was an attempt, an urgent interdict, which was uh, rejected, was turned down with costs. Uh, So awarded to Shell, they won the court case, and the party that attempted to interdict it uh, was sent away uh, and having to pay Shell's uh, lawyers. This is another attempt to stop the seismic survey. What is happening here is one of the most pristine parts of South Africa's coastline is along the Wild Coast, uh, which is between uh, East London and uh, Port Edward, if you if you know the, the area there, it's in the eastern Cape towards KwaZulu-Natal. Uh, It's called the Wild Coast for a very good reason, uh, because it is very turbulent, not well-developed, and wonderful, abundant uh, marine life. And the uh, eco-activists believe that the way that Shell is going about exploring for oil and gas in that area of South Africa is going to damage the marine life. Uh, I guess there are two sides to every story, but certainly the eco-activists are vociferous in this regard, and uh, they are attempting to stop Shell. The reason why Shell is so interested in this is a little bit further down the coast in the Southern Cape, just off Mossel Bay, uh, has been a, well by far the biggest gas find for South Africa, uh, which is in a um, about a billion, uh, the equivalent of about a billion dollar, a, a billion barrels of oil equivalent gas that has been found there. But uh, Shell don't have that right. That is, Total have got that right. So Shell are now trying to find their own um, bonanza and hence looking in a different area.
8: And then the story that doesn't go away is is our friend the virus. And uh, it continues to evolve quickly around the world. We now know last week we were just talking about the travel bans. And now we're potentially facing a big hit again for December for the tourism sector. Rumors abound both here in Namibia and I know in South Africa around potential lockdowns. Once again, restrictions on alcohol sales, perhaps curfews. Uh, what have you heard today?
1: Well, I haven't heard any update excepting that in the United Kingdom, they have gone for another a reverse in their strategy. So Boris Johnson, up until yesterday... Had allowed uh, as much freedom as any other country in the world uh, with COVID, and in South Africa we've we've we're still level one lockdown, but we don't have, for instance, spectators at uh, sports events where in the UK they do. Uh, but there's a lot of criticism of Johnson on the basis that Omicron, the new variant is uh, a lot more um, easily passed on, but it is very, very mild. And all of the information that we're getting from the hospitals, and remember this pretty much emerged in South Africa, so we have more experience than anyone else in the world, is telling us that most people don't get badly ill from uh, Omicron. In fact, I read some information from the chief executive of NetCare, who was saying that by far the majority of those who have been brought into the net care hospitals, a big private hospital group in South Africa, are actually uh, breathing in room air rather than oxygen. And in all of the other waves, there was a a majority of those who had to be on oxygen. So it's a much easier uh, variant to get through. And it's almost like what, what seems to happen with viruses is that they mutate to the stage where their hosts, i.e. us humans, have to get, well, get to learn to live with it. They don't, viruses don't want to kill their hosts. Uh, they they do like to mutate to a point where they too can survive in the environment. I mean, sounds really, really macabre. Um, and, and, but that's where Omicron's going. So as far as the experts tell us is that Omicron is, another progression towards, uh, I suppose, the common cold, where it is a virus, it is going to be endemic in society, but it's not going to kill uh, people at the level that, uh, that COVID, the, the earlier variants of COVID were, uh, were, you know, the mortality rates there were very high. And in a way, this is very, very good news. But getting back to uh, Boris Johnson, he's been criticised because he hasn't waited for the data before moving. And the thing that Sura Mapoza, the South African president, has done very well is he has been far more mature. He's weighted. He hasn't knee-jerked. He hasn't reacted, uh, certainly more recently in the whole pandemic. And this is uh, a, a, a good response. Will he now uh, turn that around and uh, give another hammer blow to the economy, to the hospitality sector? It would be out of character. Uh, he is a, a president who understands the business community having come from there himself so we'll see there's all kinds of rumours but at this point in time sanity is still prevailing
9: how does business empower our nation by bringing produce to our tables giving us technology that connects us hospitals that care for us and the tools that shape our cities and by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply.
2: I'm Jasper Roberts of Business, and with me to discuss Tonga's results is Opportunity Investments founder Chris Logan. Chris, we spoke recently when Tonga announced the proposed rights issue You said in that interview that a rights issue was inevitable. Do these numbers released today back up that thesis?
10: Yes, absolutely. Um, And um, unfortunately, you know, they've also had a tough time operationally again, uh, you know, with the sugar mills not functioning optimally. Uh, It was quite an instructive call. Quite a lot came to light in the Q&A. So they've had problems with the sugar mills the maintenance they're on and as a consequence they haven't been able to mill as much sugar as one would have wanted and there's been cane left on the fields apparently so it's a bit disappointing you know um, we saw towards the end of last financial year there was this unexpected breakdown in the sugar refinery and now we've had mill problems um, so yeah there's certainly a need for a rights issue but um, you know, my heart goes out to poor shareholders who caught in a horrible situation.
2: The operational issues in the business are glaringly obvious when you look over the numbers and you compare them to the prior financial period. When are these operational issues going to be sorted out? It's a good question. They
10: seem to have brought in an executive from Olovo and possibly that was to address, you know, the specific needs of sugar, um, which has to be a good move. You know, basically they bought an SAB miller originally, and the sugar is- industry obviously has its own specific issues. So we don't, you know, it's hard to say. And it's also hard to say, you know, to what degree have these mills, have they not, maintain them specifically you know you got some people saying there's almost a eskimo type of story here so oh.
2: share price was down five percent on the results was closer to 15 percent in the morning sessions Tongat has released earnings guidance prior to this. We did know where headline earnings and earnings per share were going to be within a ballpark. Are these numbers generally worse than anticipated, despite all the negative sentiment with the earnings guidance and rights issue?
10: Yeah, I think the numbers, you know, starting in the second half of last year, the numbers were disappointing um, with unexpected operational problems. Compounding this now, you've got this issue about an open-ended rights issue, which many people see as just a way for Magister to uh, assume control of the group. And, um, you know, I must say, I'm not a shareholder. Here. I've been analyzing this company for a long time, but I think it's disappointing how things have eventuated. You know, even Steinoff they managed to escape doing a rights issue. Yeah, you've gone and you've signaled you're having a massive rights issue. It's going to be highly dilutory. And, um, you know, you've got operational problems, which are going to push the price down. And you've got nothing to show for all the work you did, all this forensic work, you know, Steinhoff recovered, I think, close to a billion rand from their former auditors. Yeah, nothing's happened on that front. They've got excuses. But, you know, if you could get a billion back from the auditors, make a big dent into any rights issue. So it's a bit disappointing, you know, when you just look at this company, what's transpired. And... um All all shareholders on the JSC are impacted by this, even if you're not a Tonga shareholder. It adds to the risk premium of South African assets. You know, you haven't been able to believe numbers, and it seems as if shareholders are picking up all the cost of all these past misdeeds.
2: Chris, I know you are on the conference call this morning. We did talk off-air. You said that there were a lot of interesting points that came out of that. Could you just talk on the most pertinent stuff that came out of that conversation where analysts did ask management questions? Well, I think the one point that
10: came out, which I never was fully cognizant of, you know, the sugar industry is like an ecosystem. So if the farmers do, you can't have the farmers becoming highly indebted and falling over and not impacting the sugar industry. So where you get operational issues like Tonga had, where they haven't been able to take all the cane and millet You're putting your farmers under pressure. Um, And, uh, you know, if you have a rights issue and extinguish a lot of debt, and the farmers end up highly indebted, that's also not healthy. So perhaps there needs to be a comprehensive, holistic solution looked at. Um, You know, rather than just running around madly and trying to fix up Tongard's balance sheet, I I actually think the management need to, you know, push back against the banks to a degree and create some more space. Obviously, the banks have got to be paid, but it looks as if the banks are calling the shots here. And, um, you know, we don't have a holistic solution to what's a structurally important company
2: and industry. Tonga has billions of rands in land and assets. I mean, if you're making an investment decision, you've got to be asking yourself whether that land is worth what they have on the books or if it's just for Gazi. Do you think in this kind of environment there will be a willing buyer, a willing seller in terms of the quantum amount of money of that land? I mean, it is going to be tough in this environment to find a, a willing buyer at uh, the accounting values that they have on their books.
10: Yeah, and there were some pertinent questions in that regard. Um, Look, in this environment, you know, uh, with the macroeconomic policies of South Africa and the specific issues in KwaZulu-Natal, obviously that's a tough, tough sell at the moment. So, look, it's um, not a good time for a rights issue. That's the bottom line. (laughs)
2: Chris, you said that you weren't invested in Tonga. This rights issue is going to be big. It's going to be four times the size of their current market value. Post rights issue, given that you've covered this company for this long of a time, is it starting, would it start to attract um, you as an investment proposition? Of course there's so many unknowns with regards to the amount of dilution and the price that it will revert to post rights issue Um, Look,
10: you know Unfortunately, with these operational challenges, with the issues around selling land, you know, you're going to have a, a rights, very dilutory rights issue. You know, also Tonga's failure to recover monies due um, emanating from the fraud. Um, will there be value there? I'm not sure. I mean, in some ways, having someone with a lot of skin in the game. Um, like this majestic potentially is, you know, maybe it will start forcing a more hands-on approach. But that's a big if. Uh, There are also questions, one of Tonga's rivals um, the other day on a call mentioned that, you know, they believed that it it wasn't really economic to, to grow sugar on the North Coast. And the sooner all those sugar mills closed down and, you know, that land was replaced with alternative crops, the better. I know the yields in South Africa, the Natal North Coast, are a fraction of what they are in Zimbabwe and even Mozambique. So there are big question marks here. Um, And it's messy, you know. (laughs)
7: Welcome to the Power Pulse podcast series brought to you by Standard Bank.
1: Well, it's the final episode in our series, which began way back on the 23rd of August, looking at Power Pulse and how it assists businesses and um uh, well retail consumers as well in getting into renewable energy uh, it's a fascinating platform put together by standard bank who's senior manager for natural resources power and sustainable solutions dirosh maraj is with us dirosh we've come a long way in this journey it's been uh, we've learned a heck of a lot in the last 7 and today we're going to be discussing the regulatory requirements and compliance factors involved in solar pv installations for businesses. And you've got a special guest that you've managed to uh, bring into this podcast.
11: Yes, that's right. Uh, that's right, Alec. Uh, we've got uh, Paul Firmulin, who's the chief engineer from city of Johannesburg with us today for Renewable Energy.
1: Maybe we can start off, Deirosh, by just walking us through the legislation that is in place that governs sonar PVs for businesses.
11: So, Alec, you know, as a bank, we've had to get close to this And from the way we understand it, the overall governing piece of legislation is essentially the Electricity Regulation Act. However, the regulatory process to be followed for power generation assets to be legally connected is far more complex as it draws focus, you know, frames of reference that need to be complied with. So firstly, you've got uh, the NERSA framework, which is, you know, made up of the NASA licensing requirements. And that makes reference to, you know, the Schedule 2 exemptions. And um, you also have the rules and standards that need to be complied with. Uh, In this particular space, we've seen government has shifted to supporting decentralized uh, power generation. And you would have heard recently, you know, they've increased that threshold from one megawatt to 100 megawatts. So, any system below 100 megawatts doesn't need a NSA license any longer. However, there are you know the rules and standards that still need to be complied. Um, secondly, you've got the grid codes that need uh, you you need to comply with as well, and that's a whole other body of uh, reference that you need to you need to ensure compliance with. And finally, the collaboration um, and sign off from the utility that you're linking to. And this could either be ESCOM, where the requirements uh, need to be fulfilled to conclude uh, the electricity supply agreement, or uh, the municipality, like City of Joburg or Ekurhuleni, where the relevant bylaws need to be complied with. And sometimes there's a connection agreement that needs to be concluded as well. So in broad strokes, that's essentially what the regulatory environment looks like. Uh,
1: Paul, perhaps you could... Um... Give us an insight or an overview of the regulatory and compliance factors that businesses should be aware of before they initiate a solar PV installation.
12: Thanks, Alex. So, I think the first one is that in terms of the the, the National Distribution Grid Code, which is a mandatory piece of legislation, It it specifies that an end user or a customer must inform the network service provider of their intention to connect any form of generating plant to the grid. And if if I can sort of liken it to, uh, you know, road traffic network, you've kind of got to know that what the rules are to connect. Um, And you need to get hold of the supply authority to say, look, this is what I want to do. And does it sort of fit in with how? how that roadway or that network would be used. So the first one from – the first issue from our side is, is, is a safety concern. So – and it typically re- uh, applies to what dirosh mentioned, the tide inverter. So this is a device that can run in parallel with the grid. Um, and that equipment must be certified in terms of what we call NRS097, a piece of legislation that's not mandatory, But Eskom, as well as all the municipalities, require adherence to that particular specification. And what that spec says is that the equipment, the inverter equipment, must be able to detect when the grid has gone dead and stop feeding energy back in. So from our perspective, that is a key safety issue because if an inverter, for example, starts to feed power backwards into the network, we could have an output. And one of our electricians could be trying to solve that particular problem, but energy would be coming from the wrong direction, which you wouldn't expect. So we expect that the inverter must have that capability to detect a dead grid and immediately stop um, feeding energy back into the grid. It doesn't have to stop supplying the local uh, place but it must definitely stop feeding back uh, power back in. And then the second main concern, which is why we have this legislation, is that we we need to prevent power quality issues from arising. And what I mean by this is that you're connected to a network and your neighbours are connected to that same network. So if you propose a system that's too big, for example, it can introduce over-voltage conditions which which start to impact your your neighbours. So as the supply authority, we need the tools to manage that situation. So that's why there is there needs to be an application process where you come to us and you ask, can I connect this particular equipment or this size of equipment at this point of your network? We then use that NRS 097 spec to have a look, does it sort of uh, fit within what they call the the, the the simplified connection criteria? If it does, then the process will be to say, okay your system looks fine, you can now go ahead and, and in fact install it. Um, in fact, that same spec also says that if your system is bigger than 350 kilowatts, you should do a network study to make sure that, that those effects are not going to happen on the network. And the good news that I can give is that on, on typical metro cable networks, we haven't really seen big issues with power quality and overvoltage it's it's a little bit different when you're on a on a on a rural farm line because now you put a generating source at the end of the line it will in fact cause voltage rise issues but we've seen some fairly big systems 3 to 5 megawatt size systems connected onto our cable network um, and that hasn't been a problem for us at all.
1: So that's real good now for Johannesburg uh, businesses or b- businesses that fall under your ambit. But are these regulations and procedures standard across all municipalities in South Africa?
12: All right. So the good news is that there are 170 odd separate municipalities in South Africa. Um, and at the last count, there were over 50 that had, in fact, applied to NERSA for feed-in tariffs. And that number grows every day. We've had the likes of Salga um, uh, um, and AMU, for example, doing quite a lot of work to prepare municipalities to, to in fact, do this and get their processes in place. So so one, one good spinoff is, of this is that in quite a few cases, the process is more or less the same. I've got to say that it's slightly different for different municipalities. But, in general, that application process is more or less the same because most of these municipalities have been guided by um, training that, for example, what that, that salga has offered. So I think we're getting there. um certainly the bigger the bigger municipalities have all sort of subscribed to this, and as I say, at last count, there were over fifty that had NERSA-approved no so feeding tariffs.
1: We also have with us Hendrik Redani, who's the chief engineer of the Energy Department of Alternative and Renewable Energy at the city of Ukuruleni. Could you just give us some insight into the regulations and procedures at Ukuruleni and how uh, or whether or, or not these are applicable all over the country? Again, um, just so that the those who are using PowerPulse, the companies who are installing solar PVs have a feeling or a sense of uh, what regulations they have to go through?
13: Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, I'm not sure if maybe Paul might have mentioned it before. Uh, there is also an initiative by SAGA MAU, Sustainable Energy Africa, uh, where they try to bring most municipalities you know, into that working group. And then I think last time I checked, almost 40 municipalities across the country have joined in where they're trying to standardize everything. That uh, I mean, it goes across your all the requirements. Uh, so I would say almost 40 across South Africa, most probably we have more or less the same requirements, but obviously it depends from one municipality to the other. I mean, for example, I mean, uh, we from the Coraline side, we normally request, especially industrial customers, who wants to install these embedded generators? Anything above three hundred fifty, we normally request a grid impact study, at least just to show or simulate how that generator will actually integrate with our grid. So now, uh, obviously, due to capacity, there are some municipalities that can do those studies in-house, you know. But now, obviously, smaller municipalities might have to uh, outsource that function. So yes, I was saying almost forty, probably more or less the same. But, yeah, there are still some municipalities who, unfortunately, uh, they haven't been part of that working group. So you might find that uh, there might not be any uh, requirements and find that not, uh, customers wants to connect, but now they end up getting frustrated because you know, those, there's, there's no standardized application process, uh, evaluation, and, and integration process. No
7: one just buys a car. You may go to a dealership and consider all your options available in one place.
9: Maybe I'll get a family sedan and customize it just the way I want it. I'm looking for safety features like airbags for the family, of
7: course. So why should investing be any different? Glacier by Sunlam's investment platform offers you the widest choice of local and global funds from different fund managers that you can mix and match all in one place. And it lets you customize your investment exactly the way you want it. So you can enjoy your life exactly the way you want to. Ask your financial advisor why you're not with Glacier. Glacier Financial Solutions and Sunlam Life Insurance are licensed financial services providers
9: thanks Dr Moreau for agreeing to talk to me here on Biz news and uh, I'm talking to you as a knowledgeable person and expert when it comes to rail and logistics matters as also a former executive at transnet first, let's start with the infrastructure itself Tell me what what is going on I mean we see in some parts of the country the railway network being dismantled and cables being stolen. What's happening with the railway system
14: yeah thanks for for the invitation. Uh... Uh, At the top, I think uh, one would like to highlight the uh, lack of security uh, as one of the issues affecting um, rail transportation pertaining both to passengers and to to, to cargo. I think the the second issue is the, the aging railing stock, outdated technology inefficient use of land, you know, characterized by settlements uh, mushrooming closer to, to to the race. And, you know, if I recall some 20 years back, Transnet via Spoornet back then uh, went to parliament and asked that the railway police be, be brought back. That has never happened. Uh, another element that uh, one now sees is the mushrooming Incidents of uh, what one may call blatant sabotage in in 2018 November, uh, for instance, people went and using a blowtorch literally cut the the rail line. So you know, combination of theft, uh, vandalism, uh, has brought us to you know where where we are today. I mean, between 2019, 2020, for instance, 354,227 meters of uh, overhead cable uh, was stolen from TFR. But, you know, one does not see any consequences in, in any other country. You know, if people go around carrying blow torches and cutting rave, I mean, there, there would be some serious consequences.
9: Why do you think there are no consequences? I mean, you've just given me the stats, the facts on what is happening and how much damage has been caused. But if this information is known, what would expect the authorities to do something about
14: it? Yeah, that, that is what one would expect. I mean, and that's why I, I started off by saying that in March of 2001, uh, Transnet went to to Parliament to the Portfolio Committee or to the Joint Committee of Public Enterprises at, at Lake, uh, and raised the very same issues that we are talking about now. And nothing has happened. The issue of the railway police, you know, nothing has happened. Rail. If you look at rail market share, uh, back in two, 2009, it was sitting at uh, 30%. The estimate currently is that it's sitting. At twenty-one or, percent or, or, or less, and yet, from from a parliamentary or what one may call a political perspective, that doesn't seem to be any action.
9: Let's talk about uh, expand a little bit on the thirty percent that you are talking about. That that is in as far as freight is concerned. Am I am I correct?
14: Yeah, that that that, that is in so far as freight is is concerned.
9: Right, and and the infrastructure could handle thirty percent. You say then, two thousand and nine, and if I recall, part of the idea was to make sure that more freight is transported via uh, the railway lines and not the trucks that are damaging the roads at this time. But uh, the yeah. the contribution on the part of Transnet has actually come down. Why why is that? I think if
14: you look at Transnet, and here I'm looking at, at TFR. You need to look at uh, the, what you call the heavy haul lines, which is the coal line and your, your ore line. I think these are some of the best uh, railway lines in the world in terms of technology. And, and for instance, the ore line runs uh, one of the longest uh, production train in, in the world. The, the problem is in, what we call the general freight, you know the transportation of containers and and little and mm. uh, parcels that is where the problem is and it's because over the year not enough investments have gone into into that section of the business in terms of your your technology in terms of your modernizing the, the fleet and the attempt to go and buy locomotives and so forth I mean, that was a subject of the under commission was an attempt to deal with with that with that uh, with that particular problem but recently we've also seen an increase in, in incidents and problems around the uh, the coal line and the oil line i mean uh, mining companies were up in arms because of the reduced volumes that were carried on 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 the rail i want to
9: go back to the political will issue to protect the infrastructure of the country why do you think that is the case that there is no will to bring back the railway police or come up with another way of protecting this crucial infrastructure
14: I, you know, I really can't pinpoint uh, what the problem is, but uh, I, I will pack the problem at the door of the politicians. Twenty years ago, these issues were raised. Uh, I recall in around 2009, 2010, um, I was acting chief executive at Transnet Freight Rail and a number of trains, I mean, a, a train full a load full of diesel uh, was derailed. Uh, that was done on purpose. A train full of um, some hazardous chemicals derailed. Again, that was on purpose. I even had to contact the, the the security establishment, show them the pictures of what is happening. Up until today, nothing has, 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 has happened. And and one does not want to say look it's related to to what is happening in the in the country today, but I think the politicians ought to deal with this question i mean why if twenty years ago they were requested to bring back the railway police they have not done that. why on a year to year basis over three hundred and fifty four kilometers of cable has to be stolen you know, uh, annually, nothing has happened. A few years ago, around 2010, we established a cable theft index with the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Nothing has happened. Even today, the current leadership of Transnet is complaining about perceived, uh, sabotage, uh, in derailments and so forth. Nothing is being done. Uh, so I think if the Department of Transport or the Department of Public Enterprise can deal with uh, the issue of the of the political will, uh, but definitely there doesn't seem to be the will to deal with the with the issue. If you look, for instance, at uh, the metro rail situation in Cape Town, in Langa, where you've got settlements on on the railway, I think it's only now. That some action has being taken to remove uh, the, the settlements, but it shouldn't really take that long to deal with these problems because the economy is being, you know, affected negatively.
9: I want to talk about uh, the commuter rail, if I may digress for for a moment. Uh, that you know, as I said in the past, millions of people or, or trips were taken undertaken on a daily basis on the commuter railway system. But in recent times, at least in Gauteng, we don't see trains running any longer because of the cable theft that you've referred to, the railway tracks that have been stolen, but basically not much. It does not seem like an urgent and pressing problem for the authorities. What what is happening with the PRASA and the commuter rail? Well, I mean, I just
14: want to go back a little bit um, in terms of the... The rail infrastructure. Years ago, you you had Transnet um, responsible for both metro rail, mainline passenger services, and then uh, cargo. You you had the infrastructure all residing, you know, within within Transnet. Uh, years later, when when CASA was formed. Infrastructure was apportioned to metro rail and to to Transnet, and my personal opinion is that you know in a single country once you take rail infrastructure and then you start splitting it up, you are inviting problems, and and I think that's that that is where we we are today, you know, uh, and and if you were to ask me well. Uh, What should we do? What should the solution be? You know, I would say, well, let's, let's look at what's happening in, in Germany, for instance, where you've got uh, a state run entity, Deutsche Bahn, running both the infrastructure and operations. You know, now the question that, that we can ask is, should an entity like Metro Rail be running infrastructure? Or should they be running trains? So, which takes us now to issues of policy. And again, from a policy point of view, you know, we have to look at government. We do not have rail policy on the on on, on, on the table. So again, it goes back to the to the policy makers. <laughs>
1: Well, thanks for being with us uh, this evening and, indeed, through the week. We'll be back again, same time, same place, on Monday. Until then, from the BizNews team, cheerio. You've been listening to The Power Hour, brought to you by the team at BizNews.